Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am really so happy today to have Dr. Alan Sussman as my guest. I'm going to tell you a little bit about his book and a little bit about him before we we start our conversation. But for all, the, all of you listening, we also are on Facebook Live. So if you want to go to Resiliency Within's Facebook page, you can see both of us as we're doing our radio show today. So Dr. Sussman will share his new book called Saving the Art of Medicine today. Many doctors have, he says that many doctors have become despondent working within a commodified system that pushes for speed and efficiency and profit over patient care. Early in his, if I can say the word, endocrinology career, Alan Sussman, clinical assistant, professor at the University of Washington, counted himself among them. When an injury kept him from playing piano, He explored new outlets and was drawn to study meditation and the principles of Buddhism. He will share how these practices boosted his resilience and helped him to overcome the hurdles of a broken healthcare system. Um, So Saving the Art of Medicine chronicles his journey. And I love what he said. He says, from bookish to mindful to heartfelt. And we're going to find out what that means. But I want to say a little bit more about him. He's a board-certified endocrinologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington. Uh, As co-founder and president of Rainier Clinical Research Center, Dr. Sussman has has been involved in hundreds of evidence-based studies and the development of groundbreaking technology for the treatment of diabetes. He's also served as director of alternative medical services at Valley Medical Center and participated in a Washington State Commission task force to systemize standards of practice within alternative medicine. And to read more about him, you can go to Voice America's um, website to Resiliency Within and, and, and hear more about him. So welcome, 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 welcome. What's on your mind today as we're getting started? Hi, hi, Elaine. So great to be here with you. Uh, I uh, I just yesterday was with a, a dear, I was in a memorial service for a dear friend of mine who was a meditator and co-facilitator with me in a healthcare meditation group. And uh, uh, and we spent many years together with it. And we're also of the same age. And it's just a time for me really to reflect about the relationship that we had. And when I think about him and the ideal that I would like to have as much as he had was he was one of the most authentic people that I've ever met. Mm-hmm. He was brilliant. He was act- He was a nurse, uh, uh, but also had a lot of important roles to play. And as I called him uh, a compassionate techie, because not only not not only was he technically very adept and kept my uh, healthcare meditation group when it was online in line online, he also was an extremely compassionate person all the time. And very often, when we used to meet in person, he would almost round up everyone and bring them to my house to have it. Uh, 
and he never wanted to have any words of praise about him. He never even said that much in most of the uh, most of the visits that we had. Whenever he said something, it was very insightful, and he's just a paradigm of a person that I've I've been thinking about. Well, I just want to em- embrace his memory for the show today. Maybe we should dedicate the show to him today. I do. Is it okay to share his name? His name that- is John John Russell. John Russell. So we'll dedicate today's show to John Russell um, because I think your your book has a lot to do with how we nurture those compassionate sides to ourselves that sometimes we can feel lost about when we're working in systems that don't seem to support, I guess, our, our whole being. So I'm hoping that we can just go ahead and get started with questions. So could could we start by um I'm gonna um if you could describe your evolution as a physician, your progression from what we said earlier, right. bookish, mindful to heartfelt, and why it's an important um part of your story. Yes. Uh I I started as many new medical students did and needing to have book learning. Uh and I was very good at it. I was very adept at learning facts and that's what medical school was and even when you would first meet patients the first patient i ever met was a cadaver i could not develop that much a relationship with the patient no (laughs) Um, and not only that it turned out that uh, there had been a problem during the summer where the uh, air conditioning system had gone off where the where the bodies were and there were actually maggots on the bodies when we had it so my my first experience with touching human flesh was not a was not a positive one um and then even the first time that i had a chance to examine a patient there are so many facts that i had to keep in my head of, of making sure i was finding all the information that the only one of the only things I remember about the patient is the patient had a big liver. And even though I did ask social questions, there were so many other things I had to ask that there was no real thought in my mind that I needed to really know who that person was. And that's what and that during medical school, there was so many things to do, and you work such long hours at times that I was more into learning facts than I was about learning people. Uh, And when I started seeing, started getting into practice, I started learning that I'm with patients and not only just learning, felt a real need and quite frankly, a joy of being with patients was, was the most meaningful part of my medical experience which is also ultimately a way of trying to keep from getting burned out if you're more involved in other parts in terms of how long you can see the patient and whether financially you're doing okay uh you're you're missing you're missing an important part of what life is all about and so i gradually learned what life was about and so i look at my patients as being my teachers um and hopefully I imparted some good information to them too. But they but they were very important in my development from bookish to uh, to more to, to more mindfulness 
of what was going on. Um, then you, you think that's kind of one of though the, that inherent in, in learning medicine and becoming a physician is that there's so many things that you're responsible for in terms of having to find out about the medical condition of the of the patient that the focus can be on those factual details unless someone is there nurturing the idea that wait a second that's part of it but part of it is also who is that essence of that person and by knowing who they are can actually help you be um, a better physician because you learn like you said the patients are your teachers yes no no com that's completely that's completely true unfortunately the system does not promote that the system when you just even are doing a medical visit you have to fill in boxes and to decide how much that visit is worth and it's never on how well did the relationship go with it it was more did you did you ask all the right questions to come up with a proper diagnosis and treatment plan with it so the system is not geared in the right in the right way but uh, as i'm sure a lot of people are very aware of physicians are human beings and 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 they can get in touch with their sense of humanity and let that grow and not be completely overwhelmed by the system that is trying to almost milk that out of them and uh and so that was a very important part of my existence and i gradually became very good friends uh, with a group of my patients now people have said being friend a doctor being a friend with a patient is not a good idea well do you believe that's true i don't i don't at all but the idea is if you're a friend you you can be very involved with that person and that might might, might that might not let you be as objective with them uh, but that's part of the professionalism that needs to still be present so you need to have that but you can be very heartfelt good friends with someone and that could be a very meaningful part of your of your existence and their existence together there was a book that was written where it was said that a physician should be more like a neighbor you well, can know what's going on with someone but you're not really involved well i'm i'm really excited i'm really happy that you said that because um i um was a teacher of family medicine for many years but one of one of my first experiences with medicine was my family medicine physician and he not only delivered my my daughter but he also took care of my father when he had cancer he took care of my grandmother's both grandmothers was with them. Um, one of them, he was with them when she died. Um, he was the pallbearer at my dad's funeral when he died from cancer. Um, he was probably with us during every heartbreak and joyous moment that had to do with medicine. And the relationship that we had with him was like you're talking about, like he was a neighbor, a friend. And that, in, that increased my trust in him in telling him what was wrong with me if I had a problem or something with a family member. And I think that's what you're talking about, that that degree of relationship that also adds to medical care. Am I, am I, am I saying that right? <laughs> yes, yes, it, it it is. I mean, being a doctor leads to you being involved with a high degree of intimacy yes. with people. 
Well, and I and I think about endocrinology too because I worked a lot with diabetes, and you know when individuals have diabetes, I mean they may have depression. There's different mental health conditions that go along with it, and I imagine that having that relationship with their doctor that they can feel they can talk to you, not only about managing their insulin or their blood sugars, but also about their mental health, is an important part of care. Yes, yes, and also as I can give you one example, um, is a sense of compassion for them, uh, which means that they uh, they have their difficulties that they have in life. And as you're saying, like with depression, that can very well affect the way their diabetes will do. But as a physician, trying to give them the proper approach to how to do something, but at the same time, respect who they are Uh, and they are not you and they have different ideas and you might not always agree with everything, but sometimes it's important to listen to them and come from their point of view rather than yours as you go along. And I had in in the book, I had this one example of a patient that I saw for all probably almost two decades. First saw him when he was a teenager Uh, He had had a very disruptive life in that he had moved across the country with his mother who had gotten divorced. And there there had been a lot of problems, I assume, where he had been brought up. And he was continually in the hospital with what's called diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a life-threatening condition. And when he was in the hospital, he would be poked and prodded incessantly with it. And when he came out and I started seeing him, he said, uh, he said to me, I will not test my blood sugar. He will give himself insulin shots because if he didn't, he wouldn't be alive. But he would not poke himself because, because he had been traumatized by it completely. And I understood that. And while, and while if you were to look at the proper way of taking care of that patient, he should be testing his his blood sugars. And I agree with that. But in his situation, I felt it was more important to be on his side and work with him. So every time he came in to the office, the first thing I would say to him, are you testing your blood sugars? All right. After two or three times, it was said with a smile. And he would smile back at me and say, nope. But he tried to follow diet and he was trying to do other things right. And he didn't have any significant low blood sugars. He was he was trying. And this went on for uh, several years. After a while, I didn't have to ask him about whether he was testing because as soon as he came in, his first word he would say to me was, not yet. And this went on, went on and on. And he got married and he got a job and uh, and then, and then he, uh, his wife got pregnant, and they had a child. He had the child, and as soon as he had the child, the next time he came in, he says, "I'm ready now." Oh, I love that. That you really were patient with him. It was not, and this is important. I love the way you said this because there's so much saying, "Oh, that's a non-compliant patient," which is like one of the worst things that you can get branded on it when you go into the healthcare system, right? Yes, but, exactly. but you're 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 really. This is a compassionate stance. He had a lack of readiness, and you were patient and were with him, 
until he was ready. That is that to me is is one of the heights of how we can I don't know organize ourselves in the world when we're dealing with anyone that has a challenge. Yes, and 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 the system really does not promote that. Doesn't yeah. allow for that, you know. And you would get all sorts of dings for it for saying you're, you know, you almost literally would have guidelines of what you should be doing. And one of them is how often is your patient testing blood sugars. And if they're not testing at all, there's almost some systems that will demote you in terms of what your recompense is going to be on the basis that you're not following good medical practice. And so this is this is a question I want to ask you when you talk about, you know, your book is entitled Saving the Art of Medicine, the first part. What is the art of medicine? When I'm hearing you speak to me, this is the art. But maybe our listeners may not know what you mean by the art of medicine. And I'm just wondering if you can give us a description of that. Yes. Well, well, the idea is of saying there's two parts. There's the art and there's the science. Uh, and and so anything that's not the science is the art in one way. And what that and what that means is any relationship uh, that you develop with a patient, anything that you're doing in terms of promoting the care of a patient that is not evidence based. Uh, that is, uh, we talked about mindful. We can go to the next level, which would be heartfelt, uh, too, which is even a more difficult area to quantify. Um, in some ways, the art is the non-quantifiable part of medicine, it is the part that we know within ourselves is important rather than the part that we know that we're justifying by the information and evidence-based rigidity that's present that has importance, but that's the science. I'm talking about the other part that we must promote. Well, so maybe this would be a good um, time to talk about the advantages and drawbacks of evidence-based medicine, because I, I know that when I was a teacher of family medicine, we went to that Cochrane database. If it wasn't there as evidence, it was not suggested that we use that, even if there was an innovation that seem promising. Yes, yes. Uh, and and the evidence-based medicine, and I spent a lot of time with evidence-based medicine, and I worked with every major pharmaco pharmacologic institution in existence just about, uh, and I realized there was importance with it. But, but there is a rigidity with it. Science is a rigidity. It is a very, it is a rigorous system that gives you facts in a in the most in, in the most objective fashion possible but that means it's just a little sliver of what's going on so when you try to put the whole the whole picture together that has to be done beyond the science it's too many little pieces of a puzzle that's there and for instance, you mentioned the Cochrane uh, collaboration, right. uh, which is a which is using evidence-based medicine uh, and trying to review the whole subject matter of all the evidence-based medicines there, and then grading it in terms of how each study is and how acceptable it is and what are the best ones, and then making recommendations from it. And one of the areas that just happened in the last year or two that I was interested in reading about was actually involved with herbal medicine, cranberries. And 
I think it's almost common knowledge by a lot of people, particularly women, that cranberry juice and extract can be important in preventing urinary tract infections. Well, they did they did they did a lot of studies and Cochrane collaboration had probably four different reports on it going back to the 1990s. And each time they would say there is some evidence but not enough information to say that this is this is, is acceptable. And this went on and on and on and just last year they finally said there's now enough information. So does that mean anyone that was using it up to that time was using it incorrectly and now it is correct? No. Yeah. No. But that is but that's but that is an important part that science does in terms of trying to justify what's there, but we also have to use our own judgment, our own life experience as important parts of what of how we're going to promote ourselves and live and have good health. Well, so that kind of goes to the next question. Um, um, if, as you say, there's no science without interpretation or bias, that's something you say. What are the biases inherent in clinical studies and how should this awareness inform our appraisal of them? Yes. Well, there are biases because while the, while the study itself can be set up in a very rigorous manner, the problem is we're doing it with people. Yes. Right. And people on both ends. It's not just the people that are in the studies. It's the doctors. It's the researchers. They're people. They're not perfect individuals. They have their own biases. They have they have their bias in terms of I believe that I've been involved in the system for so long and what I've been involved in. I know that the answers are there. And so they get blinded from looking at other approaches of what's there. Uh, and one of the examples I use in the book that I really enjoy and and uh, can be looked up online too is about the uh, is about the man uh, is about a person in a gorilla suit. And there is a there is a and it's a psychological study and they were told the people that were watching it were told is there's three or four different groups of people throwing basketballs around. And they said, all right, it's very important. We want you to tell us exactly how many passes there are over about 20 or 30 seconds. So you start counting and we'll see who can get it right. So there, so you get very focused on what you're doing. While this is going on, in the middle of it, there is a person in a gorilla suit that's walking right through the middle of the whole group of people. And about 50% of people never see the gorilla. That's fascinating. They don't know it's there because they're so focused on watching the passes. Right, right. And we all we all do that to some extent, Right. Right, we miss some important points because we think we know the answer, um, and that's where a lot of biases are. Where there is judgment uh, biases, we already have prejudged what's going on, so we're missing what's going on. Confirmation bias: uh, we've seen it so many times that we know the next time we see it, that's what it has to be, rather than it can be something else. 
So I have another question about that because I've certainly seen where people have said, well, if it's not evidence-based, we can't use it. Yet what, like when you, as you're practicing, are there some things that you'll say, well, even though like the cranberry juice, that hmm, maybe we should try this? I mean, how do you make that determination? Right, right. It depends how, again, how rigid you want to be. There might be some people or physicians that say that say exactly what you just said. If it's not, if it's not proven, I can't use it. But as I'm, as what I've just tried to say, like even with cranberry juice, for a while it was supposedly not proven, but that didn't mean it was wrong. So your observations do do count. Uh, and just and just the opposite part is, even when it's evidence based, and I can give other examples on that, where even when you have evidence based studies and they come out, you'll have two group of people with the same information, one saying A and the other one saying almost the diametrical part B. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. So it's so it's just a limitation that's automatically there and 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 so anyone that just purely use evidence-based medicine is missing something because there's too much more that's there including experience and wisdom well it's interesting that we were talking about this because i um many people who listen to my show know that i'm one of the developers of the community resiliency model and when i was first starting of course i knew all about the CAC, the cochrane database i was working in family medicine when i was creating this model and um, I was really frustrated because, you know, it takes a while once you develop something to get the evidence base. And there are many people that shut the doors that wouldn't, you know, didn't really listen to me because I didn't have the research. But there was always someone that I could talk to and explain to why I thought this works and also my observation. And I was, I mean, so I'm just going to, you know, I want to talk more about those innovations that happen. How do they happen? And how do we create an environment where we can have the evidence base, of course, but also have an environment that looks at that rigidity and say, huh, I wonder if there's something else we can look at. I, I would really be yes. interested in your perspective about that. Yes. Well, a word that comes to mind is intuition. Mm -hmm. Is intuition something that should be respected and utilized, or is it something that should be rejected because it's not objective in the sense it's coming from you and from your experience. And ultimately, I think experience should should win out. Yeah, I'm saying, how do you quantify intuition, right? How do you quantify, <laughs> quantify it? it? Right, right, right. I did this because my gut told me it was right, right? Yes. <laughs> or, 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 the, or there really is, if you go even all the way back into Greek uh, philosophy and going back to Socrates and, and how medicine was done at that point, it was done on an observational basis. And if you look at the model that was used uh, in order to say why things happened, it was completely incorrect. Uh, but that didn't mean that they didn't come out with important things. And one of the and one of the important concepts that was that was promoted with that was this, was called phronesis. And phronesis is the Greek word for wisdom. Mm. And how do you get wisdom? You don't get wisdom from papers, from facts. Well, I want to talk from experience. 
I want to talk more about the wisdom and um, how do we get that wisdom. We're going to take a short break. And so for my listeners, I am with Dr. Alan Sussman. We're hearing his ideas. He's written a wonderful book called Saving the Art of Medicine. And we're going to be talking more about his, his impressions, his wisdom, and more about the book when we come back from the break. So we'll be, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes and we'll hear from our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Alan Sussman, who's written a wonderful book called Saving the Art of Medicine, we're, we're talking with him about his perspectives, his wisdom, and his journey, some of which he's highlighting, of course, in his book. So right before the break, we were talking about wisdom. And if you could say a little bit more about the wisdom, because that's part of the art of medicine, is that it may not be yet in the evidence, but there's a wisdom of what you do that becomes apparent to you as you, as you practice medicine. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes. It's... It's a physician, when you talk about older physicians, they have that experience that's very important. And quite frankly, sometimes the information they have, the ultimate information they have, might not even be as deep as as some of the newer physicians who have read everything. And 
And again, when you're dealing with a person, you want to be able to relate to them. And one way is by through experience. So in other words, you see someone with a problem and you say, oh, yes, okay, well, I'm going to treat it this way. You see another person, okay, I'm going to treat it this way. You've done 20 or 30, and suddenly you see that they all can't be treated the same, that there are other factors that's important. But what happened is their general sense of you were to put down their problems, their problem list. It could be look very similar. Symptoms could be very similar. But there's something different about some of them. And what makes it different is something that you learn with experience. I know I should go this way, but I think over here that might not be the best way to go. And that's because of your experience over time, the wisdom. Yeah. And the wisdom, I guess it's made up of many things. It can be made up of what you know scientifically, but it also can be made up of your intuition. I mean, there can be an integration of both, do you think? Well, there has to be, actually. It can't be. It can't be one. It has to have the the intuition. If someone has no intuition, uh, they, they can't possibly doing the maximum job they can be. And really, if you look at some of the great thinkers of our time, such as Einstein, and you read some of his quotations about he looks at the mystery and awe of the world, and he will say things is that the that the theory determines how you look at something. And he's saying that because he knows that you're eliminating, you're limiting yourself by doing that. And and he used intuition. In fact, supposedly a lot of what he did with his theory of relativity was, was in a sense not from direct mathematical uh, deduction, but 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 ideas that came to him. The way it was a visualization. Actually, a lot of it was a visualization of how he visualized gravity. Fascinating. So, you know, I want to ask you another question. Um, and this is, you, you say that this is a pivotal part of your journey, is that um, you had something happen to you, an injury. Um, yes. Apparently you had loved to play the piano and you couldn't play it after this injury. I'm not sure, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about that, but then you started um, a practice of meditation and you mentioned earlier about physicians also need to heal themselves as well as in order to be as grounded as they can be when they're trying to heal others. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. Yes. It was very pivotal and one can consider the injury could have been a so-called real downer. Um, I cut eight eight tendons in my right hand, uh, and it was. Uh, and I I will probably not go into the details because everyone gets horrified when I talk about it. Don't go into the details. Yeah, you know, you know. But needless to say, it led to three surgeries over a year and a half to try to correct it. But I do have a hand that is not. Uh, uh, that is, you could say, deformed, it's contracted. Um, and I was, I enjoyed the piano. It was two things, piano and actually tennis playing. And I had to, uh, and and I was a piano player that was very kinesthetic. And so I had to feel my hands expanding as I was playing. And while I probably could have still played in some ways, it didn't feel right. And so I gave it up, um, and at that time, there was a good friend of mine who was starting a men's group. 
and he had asked me before about whether I was interested in it. And I said, nah, I'm too busy. Don't no time for this. But now I felt like I had time it was by Robert Bly, which had to do and it was and there was meditation that was there. Um, no one in the group actually knew how to meditate or what it was. So I decided I was going to start learning how to do it. And and the more I started to get involved in it, the more I started to understand the profound changes and meaning that it had to me. I did eventually become interested more in a Buddhist meditation, but that's not that's not ultimately the most important part. Uh, the part was that I got a lot more in touch with myself in a very profound sort of way uh, uh, that got past the idea of my practice, my marriage, my kids. It was something between me and understanding me and quite frankly, uh, one could actually say the universe. Mm. Wow. So so when you started practicing, could I ask you, um, you know, I imagine there's people listening going, well, is there a certain teacher? Did you just try different modalities? You know, there's Tibetan Buddhism, there's John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness practices. Were, was there a particular teacher that you found helpful? Yeah, yeah, the... Um... I dabbled at the beginning, tried different people. People out. tend to do that, yeah. Every everything from uh, Deepak Chopra and getting a mantra from him to John Kabat-Zinn and his mindful work. But the part that really started resonating more was to learn more about Buddhism as a philosophy, not necessarily as a religion. And uh, my my the my friends they, they're actually very good friends and uh similar in age actually uh who were who were very instrumental in this was was he was it joel and michelle levy who have written several books uh on meditation and, and other areas similar to that and they were very well ensconced in the whole buddhist world and I did get a chance to meet other lamas and be involved in different retreats, but they were very instrumental in helping guiding me as I would do trips to Bhutan and India to see the Dalai Lama. And, and, and quite frankly, another very important that is, is being involved in community, Sangha. So can you important. can you explain to the to the to our audience what a sangha is? A sangha is a group of like-minded individuals that are have a meditation practice that get together. So I'm wondering as you were on this journey and you found a meditative practice and you said like it opened up this new world of even the universe. I'm wondering about that uh, I guess to say that Western medicine is reductionist. So it's not necessarily the universe, right? And that we have specialists for every organ and body part. I think of that, there's that cartoon that I think is quite famous where you have the doctors all around an elephant. And if you only, you know, touch the trunk, then you say, oh, there's something long that we need to extract in order to heal it. Or someone's, watch, you know, holding the little tail and saying something different. But really, when you started getting involved with, I guess the Buddhism was that when you started thinking about, oh, we need to really think about treating the human body as a whole, or did that start happening before what happened to your hand? 
incipiently before in depth and meaning afterwards um, and and you're absolutely a hundred percent correct the allopathic medicine is a reductionist model um with and and i really became very involved in holistic sense of how things how how the body is how the mind the mind and body because that's a very underappreciated part really is is the mind um also also the idea of how individuals relate to each other the community uh, i mean it can be such a profound part of a healing experience or a healthcare position to have with it uh, and and when i think of uh community uh, one study that I just really love is about uh, Rosetto in Pennsylvania. Uh, they did a study of all the little different towns that were there. This is about 50, 60 years ago. And they looked at all the uh, health care issues that there were. And they saw that there were two towns that were just about 10 miles apart. But the incidence of cardiovascular disease was half in rosetto compared to the team uh to 10 year 10 miles away well so what do you look at what's their diet like what type of work did they do was there asbestos there you look at every matter that you can look at to say what was the difference and both their diets were terrible and uh, they smoked and they couldn't find any difference at all but the only difference that they noticed was that in Rosetto, it was a very tight community. It was Italian community, immigrant community that had been there for uh, almost 100 years, and they were very tight-knit. And they said, aha, maybe that's it. Couldn't find any other reason. So they're following these communities along. Ten years later, they're identical in their cardiovascular risk. Also, unfortunately, the family structure had broken down too. Mm. modern society. Oh, my goodness. That, I mean, that human engagement and human connection is so important. And when you when you talk about that and then we're talking about the art of medicine, if all we all you as if medicine only becomes what are your symptoms? Here's the medicine. Yes. Then we lose that connection. And then we lose we lose something so essential for human beings. Yes, yes, yes. And and again, the other part then when you talk about mind and body, mind matter, and one area, one of my favorite areas is placebo. So talk a little bit about placebo. Share with the audience what a placebo is, and um, right. It's very fascinating to hear about placebo. Uh, it is very that. fascinating to yes. me because placebo is supposed to be a substance that's inert. In other words, it has no physiologic effect on the body that can help the person. But it helps. And so everyone says that's because of the mind. And in fact, when you look at evidence-based studies, there is a significant effort to eliminate the placebo effect because it can make the pharmacologic effect not look as good. 
So it's so it ends up trying to get rid of maybe the most important part. So rather than enhancing it and saying we should all be using placebo effect, it says how do we get how do we get rid of it? And then there are people that look at placebo and say, well, it's in your mind, so it's not real. Yeah, but it's very real. It's 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 very real. And to give you, I mean, there's all sorts of fascinating examples, but here here's one that's sort of uh, interesting in a way is, is that there was a study that was done that was evidence-based study and it had a placebo group and it had the lipid lowering medication for it. And they noticed when they got the results that the results weren't as profound as they wanted. So they then looked at the compliance rate of taking the medication. And, they, and sure enough, the patients that were more uh, that were more compliant and took the uh, medication more had a better lowering of the cholesterol level. Surprise, surprise! But at the same time, when they looked at the placebo group, when they took the placebo group better, they had a better response as well. This fast. So, so what's the the moral of the story? What's the moral of the placebo effect story? The moral is the moral is don't forget about the mind. Your mind is very powerful and should be you utilized in trying to promote your health. And that and that using a medication might might be have some importance, but ultimately it can always have more importance and maybe the primary importance by you yourself using your your capacities and sense of mind and taking care of yourself. And so when you talk about the art of medicine and yourself as a physician and how you interact with your, your patients, is that one of the key messages that you want to impart to them? And I imagine there may be others, so I'd love to hear what your message is. It's, it absolutely, it absolutely is that, that that you you know I would talk about well I would talk about medications I would talk about studies with them God knows I knew a lot about studies insufferable amount about <laughs> studies actually and I know there would be areas I would talk about for instance on cholesterol and you know should we be giving this medication or this or how important this is and go back and forth and i give them three or four different studies and while they're listening to me i could see that the patient's eyes are starting to cross and i would say to them but i have very good news for you everything i'm saying right now is probably going to be changed in five years but the only thing that can still be there that'll be of importance is our relationship Mike, you must have some wonderful, you must have patients that really adore you. I can just, I can, I can, I can hear it now. I can see it now because I, what I'm, what I'm sensing from you is the respect that you have for every person who walks through your door. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, you know, I really want you to say maybe a little bit about, invite you to say a little bit about, you know, why should people buy your book? What's in the book that they can get something out of that can help them in how they think about themselves, whether they're in medicine or not, um, in their journey of their life? Yes. Well, I I, I look at it at two different, two different levels. Uh, there is part of the book that is 
that is about what we've been talking about in terms of the mind, the body, uh, community, and them getting more information that might embolden them more to realize how important it is that they've thought about it, they intuited that, but there is information about it. There is research about that. So, so what happens is it's not foolish to do that. It could be very important to do that. What I also have in the book is, as an endocrinologist, the various different uh, fields that I was involved in, diabetes, hypertension, uh, cholesterol, uh, that, that I ended up going through each section and giving some examples and the general sense of what that field was like on an evidence-based. So they have some, some hook about what the general feel of what it is, but at the same time, trying to say to them, this is evidence and not to ignore it, but also to let them know is that it's not the word from God, that there is, that there is limitations with it, that there is discussion that needs to be done with it, and so when they are talking with a doctor about it, or God forbid that they're looking up on the internet and trying to see what's there, right? Right? That they take everything with a grain of salt too. Um, and, and, that, and that it is important to try to really try to understand studies if they can. And I know sometimes that can be very difficult to do, but that they have to realize that it's only part of a picture and that they shouldn't just accept it that they should try to understand it and try to incorporate that with the way they're feeling and the way their intuition is saying that they are. I think the other question I have is, you know, the healthcare field, you know, people are are having challenges with the healthcare field right now for the re some of the reasons we've talked about today. But if, you, if you're the patient and you're going to see a doctor and the doctor, for whatever reason, is not paying attention to you in this respectful, compassionate way that you're, we've been addressing today, what would be your suggestion to that patient? Well, one answer could be, Find a new physician. Find a new, so it's okay to find a new physician. Because yes. sometimes physicians are in this hierarchy of they just know more and I need to take what they give me. But that's not true, I don't think. I think people have the right to change and to right. find someone who right. will. And, and, and actually, quite frankly, I think that there are more physicians that are more open-minded and are trying to follow that path. So I'm not saying that there are no that there are very few good physicians out there. Like I think there are are a lot. A lot. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it gets beyond them in terms of that something that is very hard to change is the institution, is the system. Uh, you know, it's like a big uh, warship that you can't turn on a dime, uh, and and it takes time for that to happen. So. Uh, I look at it, quite frankly, that the patient needs to have compassion for the doctor. Mm, both ways, right? Not only yes. you want a, a doctor who's compassionate towards you, but that also know that the, the physician's going through something themselves. But I think that kind of leads to, to one of the last questions I think we're going to have time for today, which is, you know, we kind of have a, a nationwide epidemic of distressed, demoralized clinicians. Um, I think it got worse through the pandemic and they're overworked, um, that pressure to produce. 
you know, low staffing, you know, lots of things. So what would you, what would be your, your word? What is your thought about this? Yes. I, yes. And I, I, I deeply feel this. Uh, I, I, I understand it. I know what getting depressed about the medical field is like. Um, and um, there is, there is one little meme that I sometimes use with that. And it's called means and meaning. There's the means of production of what you're involved in. And then there's the meaning of life. And, and as, a, as a physician, don't ever forget that you need to look towards the meaning of life and to appreciate the fact that by being a physician, you're given a great opportunity that a lot of different people do not have of being intimately involved with other people and their relationships on a very profound level and that they should have gratitude for this and try to promote that as much as they can in their life, which means that they have to sometimes not get as involved with the mundane parts of what's going on in the system that's not promoting it. Well, those seem to be very wise words, and um, I'm hoping that everyone will go out and read your book, um, The Art of Saving Medicine, available at Amazon and other places um, where you can buy wonderful books. And I want to really deeply thank you for not only writing the book, but for really sharing your wisdom. Medicine is hard today, not Mm -hmm. only for the physician, but for the the, uh, (laughs) the people that are the patients. But I think that even profoundly that, you know, the humility of you sharing your personal journey of, you know, your injury to your hand and what happened to you and how it caused a looking at the world in a different way. And this show is about, I often say at the end, as my listeners will know what else is true. For some people, right, they have an injury like that. It could have ended a lot of your happiness and hope, but it didn't do that. Exactly. You found a new a new journey that sounds like it was has been very significant, even leading to the writing of this book. So um, thank you so much for for being here with us. And we have about one minute left. So I'm just going to say thank you. And we may have to have you back again, you know, maybe next year, because I think we only got to half the questions. And I would like to talk to you about AI, artificial intelligence, and your thoughts about that. We didn't have time to talk about it today. So maybe we can, at, at the end today, we can talk a little bit about maybe having you back at the beginning of the year because i think that's becoming a very hot issue for many people yes and i've i have talked about it right right as well ai is not all bad yes no i i understand that so thank you again and yeah. until we meet again this is elaine miller Karras signing off for resiliency within and just reminding my audience look around your space if something difficult has happened to you think about what else is true what uplifts you what what helps you get through what, what gives you strength? What brings you peace? It may be a prayer, a meditation. Mm. It may be going for a walk in nature. But try to remember that today as we end. Thanks again to Dr. Alan Sussman, Saving the Art of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.